0: This is the Baymont Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host Brent Billings. Today we continue in Matthew's narrative by jumping to the Gospel of Mark, traveling to the other side of the Sea of Galilee.
1: Yeah. Does that even make sense? We're going to continue in the Matthew narrative by jumping to Mark? You know why I said it that way? Because we made a promise, Brent Billings. Yes. We made a promise about every verse. So we have to continue in the Matthew narrative. But I would rather use the Mark narrative. (laughs) <laughs> so we will cover all content in Matthew. We're just going to do it through Mark. And typically when I do that, I don't do that often, but when I do do it, it's because Mark is usually more in-depth, not less in-depth, yeah, as is. I just like the way Mark records the events here. I think they might be, oh, they're just better for my teaching purposes. Whether they're more chronological or not, I don't know if I want to make that statement. I think I. think I think I think that, but I haven't thought about that enough to know if I think that. But I want to use that Chronology
0: is not necessarily the aim of either of these gospel writers anyway. So what's the point?
1: That's a great point. But yeah, I definitely want to, I love the way that Mark packages this, the next story in Matthew. Uh, I like how it's told in Mark. I like some of the details that Mark includes. Uh, And so we're going to start at
0: the end. Tell us the address. What are you going to, what verses are we going to cover in Mark today? We'll be in Mark 435 through 520. All right.
1: Perfect. Well, I'm going to, I'm probably going to stop you a lot as you read today, Brent. I got no written notes in front of me. So I'm not going to be reading anything. I'm just going to be listening to you read and stopping you and commenting as we go. By the way, just so our listeners know, there is a, there is a large point that I like to, this is a big lesson for me, for anybody that's been on my trips. Um, and there is probably my biggest point of this lesson. I won't even be making today because, and Brent, you've been with me. This is a fun lesson in person, right? Oh yeah. If you're there on site. So I'm going to I'm going to save this. It's going to be one of those few lessons that I'm going to save. I'm going to keep in the old bag of tricks for people that come on the trip. It's going to be a special lesson for those people that get to experience that. And I I of course got my lesson from Ray and uh, RVL from the time I got to spend underneath him, but that lesson will be it will remain untaught today. But there's still some really good points to make about this teaching even without
0: my main thunderous conclusion. So, with no further to do, read away, Mr. Billings. That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side.
1: All right, let's stop there, Brent, because immediately, one line in, we have ourselves some juicy little context. Because Jesus just got done doing some things in the triangle. If you remember the triangle, what was the triangle, Brent?
0: The uh, area where the religious Jews hang out, the Capernaum uh, Bethsaida and Chorazin area. Right. And he's been doing all these things and talking to them about mumsers because in that
1: area, he's run into like Roman centurions we've, we've read about. He's run into lepers. He's run into all these people that in that world would be outsiders. And Jesus has been confronting, uh, Their subculture with this narrative of how God is for the people on the outside. And he's definitely teaching this. And so as the evening comes, I think Jesus, and we'll talk about this more later, I promise. But uh, I think Jesus is wanting to continue on this point, especially in Matthew's gospel. But Jesus is wanting to continue on this point of the mumser and the outsider, and everybody who's not on the inside being invited to this kingdom thing that's going on, uh, the on the good news. And so he tells his disciples to get in the boat and let's go to the other side. Now, immediately we have problems that we just don't read. We, we don't understand unless we have the context. We miss it in the English. But first of all, we have the destination. And I think we talked about this. We're going to link in our show notes a podcast we did. I think you said it was podcast 88, episode 88 about setting the stage. And we took a look at these All the different places from around the Sea of Galilee, from Mount Arbel, we had these photos, and we were able to point out the triangle. We were able to point out Tiberius. We were able to point out—and what was the region across the other side of the lake, Brent? The Decapolis. Decapolis. And who lived there? The pagans. Pagans. I I feel like we probably dealt with this in that episode, but that was the place you, like—if you were from the religious triangle, if you were an Orthodox Jewish kid growing up in Capernaum, you did not. You would— you would not be
0: caught dead on the other side of the lake. You don't even say the name Decapolis.
1: Yeah, that's right. Uh, later, rabbinical tradition said that if even said, uttered the word Decapolis, uh, you were unclean for seven days. Like That was how other, that was how outside, that was how unJewish that part of the world was. And so Jesus says, all right, guys, we're going to get in a boat. We're going to go to the other side of the lake. Realize that every disciple, well, maybe not every disciple. There might have been a few disciples that were like, oh, yeah, the other side. I love... I love pagan cities, but most of those disciples, particularly the Bethsaida boys, they would have been like, oh, I don't think so. My mom and dad are going to kill me if they hear I went over to the other side of the lake. So so first of all, there's the destination. Uh, and in fact, that's almost bolstered by the next verse. What is the next verse in Matthew, Brent?
0: Leaving, well, in Mark, anyway. Yeah, thank you. Sorry. Woo. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. Okay, so that statement, uh, some literary scholars
1: have pointed out the phrase there in the Greek, just as he was. They took him just as he was in the boat. It's kind of, there's really no way to translate that in the English that really captures what the Greek is communicating there. Um, literary scholars have pointed out that phrase kind of means, um, like immediately, like there was there was some, it, it seems to insinuate there was some argument, there was some pushback. Like they took him just as he was like there was apparently he said, let's go to the other side. And the disciples were like, uh, what, uh they, <laughs> and remember in the world of rabbi, you don't argue with the rabbi, what the rabbi says, you, you, you do what the rabbi does. You do, there should be no pushback, but apparently there was pushback against this idea so much so that Jesus has to say, get in the boat now. Um, and the way that it's worded in two different gospels seemed to insinuate that kind of interaction with the disciples. So first of all, there's a the destination. But second of all, there's the method. Now you were there, Brent. Um, what What were you more surprised by? Let me ask you this. the si- When it came to the size of the Sea of Galilee, the area of the Galilee, should I say that? Were you surprised by its smallness and accessibility or were you surprised by its bigness? It's definitely smaller than I imagined. Right. Like, you picture, like, all these places being so far away, and even if you wanted to walk all the way like, even if you wanted to walk around the entire circumference of the lake, it wouldn't probably take you much longer than a good, whole, long day of walking. Like, it probably might take you a whole day. But you could you could walk around the whole, that would be a long walk, granted. I would do it. But you it could be done. Like, to walk to the other side of the lake, just by walking around the northern part of the lake, it's going to take you some hours, but... You don't just get in a boat like a Jewish person does not just jump in a boat and travel across the lake. That is not the mode of transportation that would be cheap, expected, desired. There's nothing about what he says that A, the destination is off, but B, the mode is off. For a Jew, the... uh, Open bodies of water symbolize chaos. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, if you remember. Uh, the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. And so large bodies of water, and we even have talked about this in other episodes, large bodies of water represent chaos. Now, we've also talked about Mein Chaim, so water can also be a source of life, living water. But living water was what, Brent? Can you remember what we said? had to be? Uh, it's like flowing from a stream. Okay, because it has uh, to come a from spring. Rain. From God, so it has to either be two forms, either or rain, rain, or the spring that you said, right? So either rains, rain, or spring. So large bodies of water are not living water; they're not. Instead, they become a picture of chaos. And, in fact, in Jesus' day, large bodies of water were sometimes seen as the reference to the uh, the underworld, the abyss, literally. In fact, if you read this same story in the Gospel of Luke, you're going to notice that Luke calls it, I believe, twice. Luke calls the Sea of Galilee. There's a reference to it being the abyss. They would have looked out at that lake and said, why are we sailing across? A, why are we going to the other side? But why are you sending, across, sending us across this lake? Let's just walk. And, which is... Which is awesome. Kind of tongue-in-cheek when you look at the Gospels. Like, what happens every single time the disciples go out on the lake, Brent? Uh, Some sort of chaos. Some storm comes up, right? Which is kind of like, if you know anything about science and... I mean, I'm not a scientist, but if you know anything about weather patterns in the Galilee, like, that doesn't happen all the time. That's not happening every Thursday or twice a week. like. And yet, every single time the disciples happen to go out on the lake by boat, a storm kicks up. And of course, they're going to think in their mind... Oh, of course, of course, the storm comes up. What did we do? We set out across the very gateway to the underworld. Like they're going to have this, oh, Jesus, no, don't make us go to the other side. And why do we have to take the boat? Um, now, I have a lot of people kick back and they say, well, hey, the disciples, they're fishermen, they're water people. But there's something a whole lot different than being a 100 yards. Fishing took place basically on shore, like you're within 100 yards of shore, the shallow waters to do your fishing. Um, they're not people, and and even people that fish a hundred yards offshore, they're still taking that job because there's money to be made, not because there's, I mean, that's what they love to do. Jewish people are not water people. Jewish people are desert people. They've always wandered around. The Israelites were always people of the desert, nomadic people. They never inhabited the coastlines. They were not people of boats. Um, this was not their, uh, this was not their go-to. And so... Yes, they were fishermen, but no, that doesn't mean they love to get out on the water and travel across the sea. So you you actually, were you were on a trip where we went across the Sea of Galilee in a boat. Is that correct? We did. And it was, now we talked about the smallness of Galilee, and yet the sea is still pretty substantial, right?
0: That's, yeah.
1: Like, it, there'd be a difference between being 100 yards offshore and being in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. I'm not going to swim across it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So if you're not a water person, like, it'd be one thing to be, to work just off of shore. It'd be a whole nother thing to get in a rickety old boat because we were in a nice big boat powered by, you know, motors and that whole nine yards. It'd be something else to be in a boat where 10 people get in it and row across. That'd be a whole different kind of experience. So this whole first two lines of this story, they are going, oh, Jesus, come on, Rabbi. Do not make us do this. You've got to be kidding me. Okay, go ahead.
0: There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. And they're thinking, of course, of course, of course
1: we get out here and a squall comes up. What, what else would we expect? This is the place where evil happens. This is the home of chaos. Go ahead.
0: Well, what happened to the other boats anyway?
1: Yeah, yeah I know. We're not really told, huh? Because he goes out of his way to point out there are other boats there.
0: And then, yeah. and then a furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat. Right. Yeah. So we to back to just the one boat. That's I right. don't know. It's a good question. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown?
1: All right, let me stop you there again. So Jesus says, in a boat, sleeping on a cushion. Have we heard this before, Brent? Is Jesus... Have we ever encountered somebody in a boat and there's a storm and they're found sleeping on a cushion? Have we? You're nodding. Nobody can see that on the podcast, <laughs> by the way. Uh, sounds like Jonah, perhaps. Okay, so Jonah... So this reference, see, I don't even think Jesus is actually sleeping. I think Jesus is being a rabbi. I think Jesus has got one eye open, one eye closed, sleeping on a cushion, looking at his disciples with one eye going, do you get it? Do you get it? Because Jonah was sent to where? To Nineveh. Nineveh. To the absolute ugly, icky pagan Gentiles, right? hmm And now they're going Where? In their story. To the pagans. To the icky pagan Gentiles. To the other side. Like they've got to feel the same way Jonah feels. And so Jesus calls back to the story of Jonah and says, You ready? Are you ready to do
0: the thing that God's called us to do? Here we go. Okay, go ahead. He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. Okay, now tell me, Brent. What is, do you have any observations about that? He
1: gets up and he says, Quiet, be still. Or, hush what is your what is your thought about i have no thoughts it's kind of a weird thing i feel like it's a weird way to phrase it like he told like it'd be one thing to be just told the waves to stop but the phrase that's used is like a a hush basically like a shut up like it's a weird phrase to use it's not a hey everybody hey waves stop moving be still in that regard it is a stop it's just a weird phrase to use. It's a, it's a, it's a hush. It's a be still. It's a voice, kind of a be quiet kind of a thing. And yet, why do you suppose that he uses those phrases? Is this like a callback to Elijah? Okay, so you're saying you tell me it's in the text. Like one of the phrases that I don't know how much we've done that yet on our podcast here. One of the phrases we're going to start to try to really embed in our listeners once we get to Jesus' ministry, everything that Jesus does is a reference to the text. Why is he sleeping on a cushion? Not because he's tired and he's sleeping during a storm. It's a wonderful point of a sermon, but that's not the point of Jesus. Jesus is doing it because it calls back to the text. Why is Jesus sleeping on a cushion? Because it's in the text, in Jonah. Why does Jesus say the things that he says? Because it's in the text. It's always a call back. And so you're thinking it might be a call back to Elijah. Um, This idea of... uh, of waves being hushed actually shows up quite a bit, particularly in the Psalms. Like if you just do a search on waves uh, in the Psalms, you're going to come up with a handful of different options. Two of them fit the word here that's used. And again, what would Jesus have said? He wouldn't have been speaking Greek when he gets up and talks to the waves. He doesn't talk to the waves in Greek or his disciples in Greek. He talks in Hebrew. at the very least Aramaic. So the word he uses here is going to be very common to two different Psalms. Two, two different Psalms would come to mind. Uh, so Psalm 107 uh, you have that. There's a portion of... Give me, give me the verses you're going to read there. Uh, 23 through 32. All right. Wa- watch how fitting this is. Psalm one hundred and seven, twenty three through 32. Some went out on the sea in ships. They were... <gasps> I wonder if that's why there's ships mm. in the story. Yeah, could be. I never even
0: thought about that. But I wonder if the reference to ships here in 107 makes... Anyway. Yeah. They were merchants on the mighty waters. They saw the works of the Lord, his wonderful deeds in the deep. Okay. So they saw the works of who? the lord they saw so they're
1: on the sea with ships and in the psalm they saw these merchants on the waters
0: saw the works of the lord okay keep going for he spoke and stirred up a tempest that lifted high the waves they mounted up to the heavens and went down to the depths in their peril their courage melted away they reeled and staggered like drunkards they were at their wits end then they cried out to the lord in their trouble and he brought them out of their distress he stilled the storm to a whisper. The waves of the sea were hushed. They were glad when it grew calm and he guided them to their desired haven. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for mankind. Let them exalt him in the assembly of the people and praise him in the council of the elders.
1: All right. So it appears that Mark is very aware of this. Matthew will be very aware of this. Uh, The disciples will be very aware of this. They see The the parallel here. But then I think, interestingly enough, in their response, so uh, I'm probably sending you all over the place, Brent, can you jump back to the Mark passage and tell me what the next, tell me how they respond. So Jesus does a Jonah, but then he also walks these things right through the Psalms and references in the Psalms. And I want to see, are the disciples just idiots? Because we always picture the disciples as like bumbling morons that can't figure out what Jesus is doing. I want to suggest: Do they actually know? Do they catch all of this stuff that we're studying right now? What are the, what's the next verse or two?
0: Uh, let's see. I'll jump back a little bit. He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, "Quiet, be still." Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, "Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith?" They were terrified and asked each other, "Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him."
1: Who is this? Even the wind. And the waves obey him. I wonder if they caught the reference to Jonah. I wonder if the disciples caught the reference to the Psalms because you have another Psalm. I believe it's Psalm 89. Go ahead and read the verse out of it. Watch how similar this is. This verse is very similar in the Hebrew.
0: You rule over the surging sea. When its waves mount up, you still them. That, okay, when, was, that was verse uh, 9. Okay, verse 9 of 89. eighty-nine nine. And so there's a reference here to you still them.
1: You hush them in the Hebrew. And again, that weird language, it's a weird thing to say about waves, and yet it shows up here again. And you'll notice the point of this verse is, he rules over, the Lord rules over. Now, read me the verses that
0: just precede that, Brent. Okay, so the paragraph before is verses 5 through 8. The heavens praise your wonders, Lord, your faithfulness too, in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies above can compare with The Lord. Who is like the Lord among the heavenly beings? In the counsel of the holy ones, God is greatly feared. He is more awesome than all who surround him. Who is like you, Lord God Almighty? You, Lord, are mighty, and your faithfulness surrounds you.
1: See, they they automatically call—I think they totally get this, because they call back. The refrain in that paragraph you just read, Brent, is, Who is this? Who is like this? Who is like the Lord? Who is like the Lord? Who is like the Lord? Three or four times that phrase shows up. Who is like the Lord? And what do the disciples say? Who is this? He sure looks like the Lord. Like, that's exactly what the disciples say. Either they didn't even know what they were saying, which I find hard to believe, Or these young Jewish kids, trained in their text, know their text so well that even in the midst of chaos, they're quoting text back to their rabbi. And I wonder if they're thinking, yes, if we get the lesson, we'll turn back around and go back to the triangle.
0: Yeah, Psalm 107, they were glad when it grew calm, and he guided them to their desired haven. Exactly. I'm wondering if they're
1: thinking, oh, yeah, rabbi, we got the lesson. And Jesus says, well, that's really good. You definitely know your text, and you got... You definitely got a lesson, but it's not the lesson we're going for, because Jesus ain't turning around. Go
0: ahead and keep reading, in Mark. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. All right. Does your Bible have any... What you got there? Footnotes? Uh, some, yeah. it's All of our Bibles, if they're
1: any good, have footnotes. Some, I don't have footnotes
0: through your Bible. Why do get new one? Some manuscripts, scatterenes, other manuscripts, Gergesenes. Ger- Gergesenes. Gergesenes. Yep. Okay. So... i just thinking Parks
1: of Rec. Right. Jerry Gergic. That's right. Jerry Gergage. So we have the Gerasenes... Is what my is what the NIV chooses to use, but some there's there's disagreement in manuscripts, and the problem is because the the we don't know what the phrase refers to. Is it Gerasenes? Is it Gadarenes? Is it uh, Gergesenes? I think you said okay. So uh, two options that jump off the page. Garissa was actually a town in the region of the Capulus. It's a city. Uh, the problem is is we already looked at in the in the podcast, the episode eighty-eight that we're linking, uh, we already looked at where the only, like, if we take the text literally at all, uh, the only place where the story of we're headed into the story of the pigs. Spoiler alert: um, where the demons get cast into the pigs and they run off the, the cliffside. Here, um, we know where we know where that story took place. It's the only place that pigs could run off of a steep bank into the waters. The only option we have around the entire Sea of Galilee. It's the only option. So we know where that story took place. If they're going over to Garasa Gerasa, would be almost a 60 mile round trip. And that's going to be relevant in the story because the pig farmers are going to take their pigs and they're going to, they're going to leave the pigs that just ran into the sea and they're going to run all the way into town and they're going to run back. That's a long, <laughs> that's a long round trip. If it's, I think it's actually 50 miles. I have to check my notes. It's a 50 mile round trip. If it's Gadara, we also have a Gadara in the same region. It's in the other direction from the cliff the steep bank there on the Sia of Galilee, but it's even longer. That's 60 miles round trip. So the first, the Garissa doesn't seem to be a likely option. Gadara seems to be an even less likely option, I think, which is why the NIV chooses Garissa here. And then Gergesa is another option that was put forth by a possible translation. We find it in, in different manuscripts. The problem is we've never found a Gergesa. It doesn't mean it doesn't exist, we know of a Gerasa, we know of a Gatera, we've never found a Gergesa. Maybe it's out there and we just haven't uncovered it yet, but we don't know of it. What is a more possible option is that it's supposed to be referencing the Gerusim, and the Greek translators didn't know how to translate, like when we translated that into different manuscripts, we didn't know how to translate that term because we had lost the context of what that term meant. Gerusim, Gerusim means the cast out ones. It's a reference to the seven. Um... Uh, Gerus is uh, a reference. If we looked at Joshua three ten, Joshua three ten, all the way back in the story of Joshua, listed all the all the nations that they cast out of 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 Canaan. And when you count the nations, guess how many there are? Brent, I'm guessing seven. Seven. And we've kind of talked about numbers before, and how seven could be a number of creation, or it could be a number of the Gentile nations, because there was seven of them that were kicked out of uh, the land of Canaan. So there are seven nations. So those seven nations became what was known in Jewish thought and oral tradition, especially as the Gerusim or the land of the cast out ones. If they're going to the Decapolis, that is a term that we know they used of the Decapolis in rabbinical tradition. They, they called the Decapolis the cast out ones, the Gerusim. So it makes a ton of sense here. And what the author Mark meant to do here was talk about, they went over to the region of the Gerusim. Again, they're going to the pagan world of the Decapolis. They're going to the land of the cast out ones. They're going
0: to the other side. Okay, go ahead and keep reading. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, But he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. Now I imagine the disciples getting to the other side of the lake here and going, of course. They
1: land the boat, and immediately a dude comes running out here, possessed by a demon, naked, covered in spit and who knows what kind of animal feces running down, screaming, demonically possessed from the tombs. And I picture the disciples going, I, "This is a, see, Jesus, this is exactly what we said. Why go to the other side? Why take a boat? Why go across the abyss? Now we get to the other side and all we encounter is satanic, demonic activity. We have no business being over here. This is exactly what I think they would expect. And here's this guy, if you can imagine, apparently, I don't know, what did he have family? And, and we said that I don't think it's Gadara. I don't think it's Gerasa. I think it's Hippos. I think they went over to the land of the cast out ones. And the city we're dealing with is the local city of Susita or Hippos. One of those is Greek and one of those is Roman. The name means horse. Hippo, Hippo, Hippopotamus, river horse, Hippos. Anyway, I'm acting like a linguist here. I really don't know. But uh, Hippopotamus is a river horse. Anyway, uh, Hippos or Susita. And uh, they go over here. I'm assuming this guy must have had family, friends one day. Like at some day in his past, he had friends. He had some connections. But eventually he was struck with all kinds of mental illness. And when you're, listen, when you're in the Greek world, if you're mentally ill, you ain't ain't finding a place in the Greco-Roman world. We got no place for that. We're going to put you over in the fringes. We're going to put you on the outside. And in this case, nobody could, they couldn't even chain him up. Like, that's what they wanted to do with this guy. They wanted to chain him up. He was a dangerous society. Right, hopefully this is all starting to ring some bells here. Sound like home. They, they wanted to get rid of him, and they can't. They can't even chain him up, and so they force him to live out in the in the tombs. I remember rape saying, I, I can picture kids, like, throwing rocks into the tomb. Let's see if we can make the idiot scream, that kind of, like, he's driven out. He is now an absolute outcast. Um, demonically possessed. Jews don't want anything to do with him. The Greco Romans don't want anything to do with them. And here comes this tasseled rabbi, somebody they've never seen set foot over here on this side of the lake.
0: Uh so I noticed Mark does not actually say that he was naked. Is that in one of the other gospels? I don't know what that signif if uh if that would hold any significance, but I was just curious.
1: That is interesting. I think it does say it in another gospel. Does it say at the end, is he is he dressed and in his right mind? Uh let's see here. Dressed and sitting there, dressed and in his right mind. Oh, I wonder if that's a new translation issue. I don't know. I, somewhere it does talk about his
0: nakedness in some yeah, gospel. It does say in verse 15, it says, uh, when they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by a legion of demons, sitting there, dressed and in his right mind. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Anyway. yeah, Good question. Fair assumption. Yep. All right. Let's go and keep reading. not to send them out of the area. So just to the north of Susita, by just a few miles, was the 10th Roman Legion was stationed for quite
1: some time. And that legion's uh, image, its standard, was the boar, the pig. It's going to be all be relevant here, because I think, well, all the synoptic gospels point all this stuff out. So the story must have happened along these lines in some way. Like, this must not just be authorial freedom. Like, it's not just the author bending a story. Like, somehow this story happened... Very similar to the way it's laid out in the story, because all synoptic gospels record it the same way. But the reference there is incredibly political. Like this guy's got a demon, a demon, uh, and his name is Legion. The demon's names are Legion. And just to the north here is a Roman Legion, which is going to stand for empire. Obviously directly opposed to the kingdom of God. Go and keep reading. A
0: large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. There's your boars. Okay. All right. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Okay, now
1: I love that, because what they asked the, go ahead and read that, what do the demons ask again?
0: Send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them.
1: All right, so in Luke, it says, the demons say, don't send us back to the abyss. And it uses that word abyss. And so Jesus says, okay, go ahead and go into the pigs. And there you can see these, all these political references, the demons going into the pigs named legion, all the references of this legion to the North. And yet uh, I love kind of Jesus's rabbinical sense of humor because the, the demons are like, don't send us back into the, bi- into the abyss. And so Jesus sends them into the pigs and then sends the pigs into the abyss. Like, right? cause that sea and Luke is going to reference that. He sends them into the abyss. That is the sea of Galilee. So, it just love that reference there, Jesus' rabbinical sense of humor. Apparently, Jesus is really loving and kind until he's dealing with demons, and then all bets are off at that point.
0: He sends demons back where they ought to go. So, all right, go ahead. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. Which I imagine they're a little upset. He just put a major dent in their economy.
1: Major export of Susita, Hippos, and that northern part of the Decapolis was pigs. It was one of their major exports, and he just sent a couple thousand of them into the abyss. So we
0: now have an economic problem. Greco-Roman world's not going to like this Jewish rabbi doing that. Go ahead. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region.
1: That's what the Greco-Roman world will always think of the kingdom of God. Like you read this story as a Jesus follower, just as a churchgoer in your Sunday school class, and you think, oh, hooray, Jesus just restored the demoniac man. And now he's, oh, yes, he's all all better now. And and it's all back to normal and everybody can celebrate. And that's not how the Greco-Roman world responds. The Greco-Roman world looks at this Jesus and says, please get out of here, because if you keep doing this, you are going to ruin the system upon which our world is built upon. Like We have a system here, Jesus. It's built with classes. Uh, Everybody fits in their particular category in their box. Everybody does their job the way they're supposed to do their job. And if you start messing with that system and you start messing with the boxes, this is going to upset everything, especially if it comes at the cost of our economic security and well-being. So can you please just get out of here, which I, I hope that we're confronted with more than just Oh, yeah, that's a good point, Marty. Like, I hope we really wrestle with, we live in a world where, quite frankly, we don't want the kingdom of God. We love to study about the kingdom of God. We love to um, think very positively about the kingdom of God theologically. But when it comes to the practical kingdom of God breaking out among us, us Greco-Romans, us Herodians do not like the idea of the kingdom of God coming among us because it's going to mess up our systems. It's going to mess up our comfort. It's going to mess up our our economy. It's going to mess up all that
0: stuff. And so uh, we just see that here. Go ahead and keep reading. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him.
1: Okay, now we have, uh, you know what you want to happen here? Like this guy's got no, apparently he's got no connection in this town. They don't want him. They want Jesus to get out of here. Like he doesn't have any friends and family back home. He doesn't have a job he gets to go back to. Like, you know what you want Jesus to do. Like, you want Jesus to look over and be like, hey, Peter, scoot over and let this guy get in the boat. Like, this is the perfect candidate for discipleship. He's got no family to tie him down. He's got no job to worry about. He literally has nothing. He could drop everything and give his whole life to following this Jewish rabbi. And he'd be a Gentile to boot. Like, what a great addition to the Havara. Like, you you want Jesus to say, yes, like, you need a home. There's no synagogue here. There's no community of faith that he's going to be able to belong to,
0: it only makes sense. Like, take this guy with you. Now watch what Jesus says. Jesus did not let him, but said, go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. All right. Now I find this stunning
1: because how much theological training does this guy have? Is this guy a Jew, Brent? Nope. Does Noah's text? Nope. Uh, how much training do you think he got on that beach? Like maybe, maybe, I don't know, how long was he there? As the As the pig farmers ran away... Like how long was he with Jesus? Like an hour or two? Uh, how much Bible training could he have gotten? And uh, which raises another question: Do you think that's what Jesus talked to Like, let's say they're on the beach for a couple hours. Do you think Jesus sat there and went, "Okay, now quick, here's here's Christianity 101. Here's maybe you just gave him a couple of beatitudes. Yeah. <laughs> sounds like. <laughs> or did he spend time talking to him about his life and his family and his? I would love to have been on that, a fly on that beach shore. And and listen to that comment. You like the reference? Yeah. Uh, uh, there was no wall there. I couldn't see a fly on the wall. Um, I would have loved to have listened in on that conversation and seen what it was that Jesus talked about. But I'll tell you one thing. This guy is not theologically trained. He has no clue. Like, the God of Israel? Like, what does this guy know? And Jesus sends him away to tell his story. And so I love that this story comes up because... We talk a lot in our podcast about how much the Jews committed themselves to knowing their text. And uh, we're we're, we're just getting started with that as we walk through the Gospels. But what can sometimes happen with my students is they feel like the standard is they have to be that committed to their text. They have to become people of the Bible. They have to have all this knowledge. They need to have all these. They need to be super committed to memorizing. And I am going to argue for a lot of those things. I'm going to argue we ought to memorize our text. I'm going to argue that we ought to know more. But the thing I love about this story is it reminds us that if I don't have that, I'm not excluded from the mission. Like this guy has one thing and one thing only. He doesn't have any theological training. The only thing this guy has is his story. And apparently his story is enough. Like apparently this guy wielding only his own experience with Jesus. His story of what this this tasseled rabbi did for me is apparently enough because Jesus sends him away. He doesn't need a Bible college degree. He doesn't need seminary training. He doesn't even need to go to care group for a while or hit a Sunday school class up for a season he doesn't need to go through a 101 training or any kind of those things. All he needs is his story. Apparently, he's had a life encounter with Jesus, and that's enough to bring the kingdom to the most pagan, broken society that we've bumped into in the Gospels to this point. I, I just find that to be so...
0: So give me the last verse of the story. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. So he goes and he does it.
1: And not only does he do, does he do it, but this, apparently it even works. In the Gospels, no matter what way we read the Gospels or which Gospels we choose to read, Jesus only shows up here with his disciples two times. This is the first time. And Jesus will come here again later. He doesn't send his disciples here. When he sends disciples out two by two, or he sends out the 72, uh, he tells them to go to the lost house of Israel. So they don't go to the Decapolis. They don't go to the pagans. It's not where Jesus sends them. So his, his disciples never come here while he's, while Jesus is alive. His, his disciples never, he never comes back here as far as what's recorded in the gospels, except for one other time. And two different gospel writers record it two different ways. But the second time he comes over here, it will be to feed how many people, Brent? 4,000. He's going to come back over here. He's going to feed 4,000 people. And he never came back here. And, and so the fact, this guy, he told a story and apparently Brent, it worked because Jesus, Jesus is going to get into the boat at this, at the end of the story. And he's going to sail back across the lake. He's not going to come back to this region. And when he comes back to this region, the second time, thousands of people come out to greet him. Like I find that so unbelievably moving. And not only that, but eventually hundreds of years later, this land becomes Christianized. And there are lots of churches. In fact, we've uncovered more churches at Susita than when I started going over there years ago. There's seven churches that we've found and might be even more um, in the excavations we found them. But there were many Christian churches in Hippos. And one of them, uh, not a church, should I say, there was also a cathedral in Hippos. Now, what is a cathedral, Brent? Do you know? A bigger church? A bigger church, but it's actually not a church. It's actually a place where somebody lives. A cathedral is the bishop's house in ancient Christianity. Oh, I did not realize that. So there's a bishop that lives there. His name is the Bishop of Hippos, real creative name. And according to church tradition, the Bishop of Hippos is one of the guys, depending on who you talk to, he's either the guy who actually penned it, or he's one of a group of guys who penned the Nicene Creed. Not the one who came up with the Nicene Creed, a council did that. So not the content, but as far as the guy who actually wrote it down, It was written by the Bishop of Hippos. Now, if you know anything about ecumenical Christianity and the ecumenical councils and the ancient creeds and orthodoxy of Christianity, the Nicene Creed is the first creed that defined the faith that Christians have today. Now, we could have a lot of discussions about creeds, but that's not the point. My point is this one healed demoniac shared his story. Thousands of people came out. And eventually the place that he lived is the seat of a bishop who will, at least with a team of people, pin the most foundational creed to the Christian faith. It's hard, and I've told this lesson a lot of times, it is hard for me to even stop long enough just to like get my head around one untrained, crazy, demoniac, demon-possessed lunatic of a guy who was healed by Jesus changes. Who knows the extent of the impact he had on the history of our faith? It is unbelievable to me to consider that. But anyway, that's that story. It's a pretty good one. And there's a whole piece that you got
0: to come to Israel and hear. Am I wrong? Uh, No, no, it's good. It's a good piece. (laughs) What's interesting about this guy is it says initially, uh, the man who had been demon possessed begged to go with Jesus. Correct. And Jesus did not let him Gave him a different mission and, and he's like, so he, so he went and did it. There's no argument. He's just like, oh, he just did well, if, if that's what I'm supposed to do. Right. So he goes and does it faithfully and boom. Yep. yep. thousands of people. Pretty
1: darn good. I like that story a lot. Gives me goose pimples every time I think
0: of it. All right. Are we done with Mark for now?
1: Uh, we're going to, we're going to revisit it next podcast. Okay. All right. Little a little, more, little bit. We're going to go back to Mark. Matthew. We're going to go back to Mark. We're going to go back to Matthew.
0: Okay. Jump around a little right. bit. Yep. Okay. Sounds good. Well, I think that uh, pretty much does it for this episode. If you have any questions about the show, if you want to get a hold of us, you can find all that at Baymod Discipleship.com. So thanks for joining us on the Baymod Podcast. We'll talk to you again soon.